Welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. The topic today is glyphosate-resistant weeds on the Canadian prairies. You will learn the latest weed survey results and pick up a few important weed management tips. These extra steps to improve crop competition will take some of the pressure off of herbicides, which often provide the lion's share, or dandelion's share, of weed control. With me today are... My name is Sean Sharp. I am a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada at the Saskatoon Research and Development Centre in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And yeah, so my name is Charles Geddes. I'm a research scientist in weed ecology and cropping systems uh, based out of Lethbridge, Alberta. And I'm with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada at the Lethbridge Research and Development Centre. To start, I asked each of them to describe the key message they want to get across in this podcast. Herbicide resistance is obviously a growing issue that that many farmers are facing across the prairies. Um, Glyphosate resistance is of particular importance, I think, um, because of the reliance on on glyphosate in our cropping systems. And we're also seeing this this increase in in a few different uh, weed species that we have here in Western Canada. Um, and I think that the the main message is is that in order to to deal with with these weeds uh, sustainably moving forward, that our weed management programs need to focus more um, on integrating non-chemical tools um, in addition with with the uh, remaining herbicide options that we have left. Sean, what about you? Um, it's very important to reduce the soil seed bank. And that way we prevent or we hold back the number of plants that we have to kill in each season. And therefore, when we're able to do things like rotate modes of action, um, there's less risk associated um, in one crop cycle for one herbicide. A lot of the producers are incorporating these aspects already. So I think we're in a very good place and that it's going to come down to awareness being very important. Before we dig into these messages, we're going to learn a little bit about our scientists. Sean, what's your favorite place on the Canadian prairies? My favorite place on the Canadian prairies, I'm quite new to the prairies and the pandemic has made it a little more challenging to go and visit safely. I do have two horses that we keep outside the city and it's quite enjoyable to head out there and see all of of the different landscapes and it's quite pretty here it's quite green so where did you go to high school i went to high school in amherst nova scotia so after high school i I went to mount allison i met there a professor and he took me under his wing and he because i was um i got there and i had a lot of interests but i wasn't quite sure where to go or you know what to do and he took me under his wing and he told me you know go get a, a doctorate and kind of make a career out of this. His name was uh, Dr. Robert Thompson, but uh, unfortunately he had passed away a few, a, few, a few years after I left, so I didn't get to, to follow up with him. Yeah, he would have liked to have seen where you are now. I know. Thanks, Sean. Charles, what's your favorite place on the Canadian prairies? Um, so if you would have asked me five years ago, I would have said southern Manitoba because that's, that's kind of where I grew up. And I mean, the... Uh, just the, the the country out there is is just so beautiful. Um, 
I think now though, I my favorite place is probably transitioned to 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 Southern Alberta. Um, more so probably for for uh, for I guess recreational uh, reasons. Um, so many different different opportunities for for things like like camping, exploring, hiking, things like that. Um, I think that 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 Southern Alberta is just a, an amazing place to be. Where did you go to high school, Charles? So I went to high school in Pilot Mound, Manitoba. After high school, I, I went to the University of Manitoba and uh, took a bachelor's of science in agroecology. Um, and then um, during during that uh, that undergrad degree, I did an undergrad thesis uh, with with Dr. Rob Golden, the weed scientist there in the yeah. in the Department of Plant Science. And uh, that's kind of what what got me interested in weed science. Well, let's get into the weeds since that's what we're here for. Sean Sharp conducted a post-harvest survey of kochia in Saskatchewan in 2019. The research team drove around the province looking for kochia and gathered seeds from 12 plants at each sample location. Then they grew these seeds in a greenhouse, applied glyphosate when kochia plants were 3 to 5 centimeters, and measured the level of damage after three weeks. We evaluated the level of resistance for each population based on how many individuals survived in that population. So the test effectively is telling you how many plants were able to be treated and then start to regrow or if they looked uninjured. Sharp's preliminary report found some level of resistance in 88% of the population gathered and resistant populations were found throughout the sample area, which concentrated on the brown and dark brown soil zones of Saskatchewan. Taking that all together, we basically found that there's a lot of resistant traits spreading through the populations. That's not necessarily going to be indicative of 100% loss of control. These plants are typically still injured, they're still chlorotic, but there is going to be additional risk of further evolution against these pesticides if we don't start to address this through IPM and things like that. Charles, let's go to you. and Can you give us an update on on the numbers uh, in terms of percentage of of resistance for kochia in Alberta and Manitoba? Uh, We do have the stats from 2017 in Alberta, um, which showed that all of the kochia populations were resistant to group 2 herbicides or acetylactate synthase inhibitors. 50% 50% of them were, were resistant to glyphosate, and then um, roughly about 18% of them were resistant to dicamba. An additional about 13 or 14% of them were fluoroxypyr resistant as well. Um, but that actually didn't really, um, it didn't overlap directly with dicamba resistance, um, suggesting that potentially different mechanisms are causing resistance to dicamba and fluoroxypyr, which are two synthetic oxen herbicides. Um, so actually that number that for as far as kochia populations resistant to at least one synthetic oxen herbicide was actually at about 28% after all of that um, for Alberta in 2017. And so we don't really have um, any results to share for 2021 yet, but my hope is that, that we'll have um, some pretty, uh, a pretty good look at, at what resistance or the status of resistance um, coming forward to this fall probably. Um, as far as Manitoba, so that the most recent survey was conducted in 2018, um, some following similar methods to what Sean had described. 
And in that, we showed that 58% uh, of the populations were glyphosate resistant. And uh, only it was only four, four populations overall, which equated to about 1% of the populations were dicamba resistant in Manitoba. Sharp's Saskatchewan survey showed some indication of dicamba resistant kochia, but it's not a concerning amount as of yet. Some Russian thistle samples collected show potential indications of glyphosate tolerance, but this is not confirmed. This is the first kind of um, indication of this here in the province for Saskatchewan. So, you know, I don't want to raise alarm balls too highly mm -hmm. about this. You know, we still have additional testing to do. And with Russian thistle, uh, it does have leaf modifications for adaptation towards drought stress. And um, the way that we do the screening was for kochia. So I don't, you know, so there's, I do have a, a few questions about um, the, the impact of staging, for example, as, as well as um, dose response work, but um, those will have to come after the screening's finished. So you're not ready to say that we have a glyphosate-resistant Russian thistle population on the prairies quite yet? No, without further testing, yeah. yeah Just okay. that this test found something and that it's weird and we need to do more, more okay. testing. And, and just to add to that, in um, so for for the other surveys that, that we've been conducting, so so Russian thistle is, has kind of uh, always been screened along with with uh, with kochia in, in these systematic surveys, and in Manitoba we we did uh, we did um, screen all the all of the populations that were collected from from Manitoba um, with uh, with group two, um, group four, and group nine herbicides, and didn't find any resistance in Russian thistle present in Manitoba as of 2018. Um, in, uh, for Alberta, we, act, we have uh, completed the, the screening um, for, for Alberta and, and we have um, a, a few populations that, that are surviving um, sort of standard rates of, of glyphosate. Um, but this is this is in the the greenhouse and sometimes efficacy in greenhouse studies can vary depending on um, can vary from what would actually be observed in the field. So um, we're currently working on doing uh, further studies to that would either um, confirm or um, disconfirm, you could say, uh, glyphosate resistance in Russian thistle. Well, let's move on. Uh, sticking with you, Charles, and uh, glyphosate resistant weeds in Alberta. Tell me about the downy brome discovery. Yeah, so um, so last growing season, so in 2021, um, I guess first of all, um, as part of the, the herbicide resistant weed survey project um, across the prairies, uh, we also offer um, diagnostic testing for what we call novel herbicide resistance. Um, and the way that we define novel herbicide resistance is, is basically biotypes that are not known to occur um, within individual provinces, right? So type, new types of resistance that may be showing up um, that either farmers or agronomists um, are concerned about. Um, so we, through this program, um, we were approached by an agronomist uh, here in Southern Alberta um, that uh, noted that a downy brome population had survived, um, had 
survived four applications of, of glyphosate alone. Um, and this particular field was a, a glyphosate resistant canola field. Um, and so the, uh, the agronomist um, got in contact with us and we um, offered to, to, to look into the problem a bit further. And with seed that we collected from, from that site, um, we, we have conducted basically all, all of the experiments to um, confirm officially that, that it, it was glyphosate resistant. And the, the, this particular population was exhibiting up to 12-fold resistance to glyphosate um, compared with standard susceptible populations. Um, so it, uh, it certainly is glyphosate resistant. Um, however, uh, since this is sort of a recent development, we, we do not know if it actually occurs beyond this initial field. Um, so it, it, it is still possible that this could be um, essentially one of the, the first points of evolution of glyphosate resistance for, for downy brome in, in Western Canada. Um, but it's also possible that it could exist beyond this initial field. Um, so this is, uh, this is a priority for us here moving forward into this growing season. I ask how glyphosate resistance develops in the first place. First of all, I'll start off with a disclaimer that herbicide resistance is not always kind of a, a straightforward kind of one-way street thing, right? Um, there, there's multiple different mechanisms that can confer resistance to herbicides, uh, right? So, and and some of these uh, different mechanisms have different implications for for how they spread or grow in a population. Um, by far the most common type of resistance is is related to target site resistance or the herbicide binding site within the plant and um, usually this this is basically happens as a, a random and very in very infrequent um, naturally occurring mutation in the plant right that um, happens to confer resistance to the given herbicide um, not it's not necessarily caused by applying that herbicide but it's just we're selecting for a random naturally occurring mutation that occurs in the population um, and then over frequent use of that herbicide um, you see more selection pressure allowing those plants to survive produce seed that seed enters back into the seed bank and as you continually use that uh, particular tool um, you start seeing those biotypes grow within the population. If you look at at herbicide herbicide sales or herbicide use data, right? Um, we these data have shown, uh, for example, in Alberta that uh, that glyphosate sales have tripled essentially in the last two decades, right? So um, we're we're um, there's more of the herbicide that's that's being applied, and and I think, of course, that's that's linked to selection pressure for resistance. Sean, do you see a day where, I mean, if if nothing changes, that glyphosate, uh, you know, a very important tool uh, used across the prairies, especially in no-till situations, where glyphosate just doesn't work anymore. If we look at the history of kochia and kind of its timing on when it evolved resistance compared to the rest of the weed community for for group two for example you know it was about the mid 80s and then the mid 2000s we started seeing it in many other weeds and um you know my concern my personal concern is that you know kochia might be a bit of a to use a bit of a, a poetic term a harbinger 
that it's an early signal that something is wrong and that we might not just see this one plant species responding because all of the other plant species are still in that field and they're all still under those same pressures. So that it's just that with kochia, because of its adaptations to being able to live in extreme environments, it's adapting quicker. But those other ones have already adapted. We already know that. A lot of the broadleaves and wild oat. So I think there, you know, if we don't start being a little more conscientious of um, getting our seed bank levels down and, and how many plants we have to kill down, um, there may come a point when additional resistance is able to evolve and spread. That's how, that's how I want to close off the, the last few minutes of this conversation is to jump off from there and let's talk about how we control that seed bank besides herbicides. How, like these tools are not necessarily replacements for herbicides. They're things to maintain the efficacy of, of herbicides. And, and this is the whole integrated weed management program. So Sean, what what do you what would you like to see more or wider spread adoption across the prairies as a way to help herbicides? I think any technique that will make the crop more competitive will be very influential on seed bank um, emergence as well as its return. Um, I like to use an analogy. So, you know, herbicides are always going to be an important part of management. You know, it's going to be a big castle that's going to protect your crop. Um, but from the point of view, if you have too many things attacking your castle, it's going to pile up and get over. Well, if we can just have our crop do a bit of the work as well, right, come out of the castle because they're actually there to compete. So if we can get them to be, you know, narrow growth spacing, increase seeding rates, um, timing of planting um, so that we can e exploit killing weeds prior to that. Um, planting crops that are kind of a higher stand or that are more competitive. Diverse rotations, like those are all going to be very important um, to, to, to change things up and to make it tougher so that you know, you can still have your herbicide doing the work at the beginning. And then after those initial weeds are dead, your crop will recover and be nice and lush and the canopy will close. And any weeds that are emerging after that are going to have a, a hard time because there's not going to be a whole lot of light down there, which means there's not going to be a lot of ability to get, you know, biomass accumulated and reproduced. So you guys are following the footsteps of Hugh Becky and, and Neil Harker. I'm sure you hear their names every day, and it's great to have two new uh, new up-and-coming researchers like you guys to to carry the banner for the next generation. But one of the things they, to your point, Sean, uh, about crop competition, one of their phrases was first up wins." and And so Charles, I don't know whether you know if you can jump off of some of Sean's comments and and give us some of your own thoughts on integrated weed management to help that crop competition. You mentioned we were following in the footsteps of, of previous weed scientists, and I think they showed quite clearly that that uh, increasing crop seeding rates is the most consistent um, method to improve the ability for a crop to compete with weeds. Um, and I'll, I'll link that back to a, a recent study that we did on um, oxenic resistant kochia, um, where where um, basically 
we we did a dose response, so looking at the um, effect of various rates of fluoroxpir on fluoroxpir resistant and susceptible kochia, but then adding in crop seeding rate as a component to that as well. And we showed that by increasing that crop seeding rate, you're actually getting more performance out of your herbicide, even if that kosher population is resistant to that herbicide. Um, so you're effectively decreasing the amount of that herbicide that's needed to control both susceptible and resistant populations in that case, right? Um, so, I mean, crop seeding rate is by far the most important, but there's several others um that that can be beneficial um one of the thing i think as weed scientists we we sort of have a, a big challenge because there's so many potential options that can facilitate management of herbicide resistance and one of our big goals is figuring out the best way or the most optimal combination um, for particular use cases right and uh, what what we found um is that it's not always the same depending on your problem weed species, right? So some things that will work for kochia um, won't work for wild oat, for example, and vice versa. Um, so I think really understanding the biology of those species um, actually provides a lot of opportunity into optimizing weed control programs um, to, to target the problematic weed species that a farmer is dealing with. Just on that topic of, you know, getting to know the weed, Kosha tends to thrive in areas where, where the crop doesn't thrive. So crop competition can be a real challenge, say in a saline patch, and there's a lot of salinity across the prairies. Like, is, is there, is, so, so just planting more seed in those areas, it doesn't mean you're going to get more crop. So what would you do in some of these, these patchy areas where, where some weeds like kosher thrive and the crop just can't get established? Sean? Um. I currently have a study that's ongoing and it's evaluating barriers, um, including black plastic mulch, hydro mulch, and chaff dumping um, kind of on top of these patches to see um, if, if we can do it for three years. Um, I only have one year of data, but we did find that kind of in these instances where we're kind of marginal, the crop's not really going to do well, um, that uh, chaff in particular was very effective. Um, so kind of putting a, a layer of chaff down to kind of prevent the emergence through, because uh, with kochia, we know from its ecology and previous studies that it doesn't tolerate burial. Basically, I'm artificially burying it by just depositing chaff on top of it. We will see how that works out long-term as we go. But So that's kind of one idea of how to manage it. Um, mowing is another, for example. Spot tillage, for example, as well. I do see that a little bit around town. Just, just to add to that, um, so, so we've had a uh, a project through the Integrated Crop Agronomy Cluster that's been looking at kosher management across Western Canada, and uh, so through that, we're we're looking at various strategies, and so these saline areas, um, they're they're essentially a breeding ground for herbicide resistance because there's very little um, competition from your crop. What, what we've shown through this project is that, um, first of all, the seed on kochia tends to, um, or kochia tends to produce viable seed rather late in the year, right? So um, it, it starts in mid to late August and then increases quite rapidly throughout September. Um, so essentially coming in before that, that time and either mowing or cutting off these populations could be beneficial. Um, the other thing that, that we've shown is that uh, in some of our rotational work, if you can get a, a forage established or 
even a, a winter cereal like winter wheat um, growing or in your crop rotation. Um, these these crops are essentially harvested before crop um, or before kosher produces viable seed, and they're therefore you're mitigating seed production and entry back into the soil seed bank. Um, and that that you can actually see those benefits quite quickly. Um, for example, we're in last year the data from last year we were in our third year of this this rotation study and in the the rotations that included um, winter wheat had um, about a quarter the density of um, rotations that were only summer annual crops um, and it, it was almost it was very difficult to find even kosher populations in the alfalfa metabrome or the forage um, stand that we had as well um, so the trick is, though, trying to establish that forage in those in those saline areas, and and I think that that is uh, is one of the big um, knowledge gaps and, and things that we need to figure out moving forward. We've been talking about herbicide resistance probably, you know, from a year after we started using herbicides. I'm not sure exactly, but but there's this sense that you know, nothing's being done. But I think probably farmers are adopting practices incrementally just to try to help the situation. So do you do you see it just as, you know, we're just always in a in a balance? And I'll go to you, Sean, or are we like walking toward a cliff that we're gonna fall off? Like what how do you envision where we're at? Yeah, I mean, I would say that producers are incorporating a lot of practices to help manage and prevent, you know, increased rates of seeding, um, diverse rotations, spot tillage, things like that. So um, I think they are very innovative themselves. And um, the issue is more how we're doing weed management. And a lot of the emphasis is on the critical period for weed control. And with those considerations, um, it, it's very early on. And so there's not a lot of thought about what about the weeds later on? Are they reproducing? How much seed is going back down? So I think, you know, we just need to think outside of that a bit, a bit further into the crop and just make sure that weeds aren't being, you know, seed isn't coming back in, into those systems and that our, our seed banks are declining. Um, a lot of the changes, if you look at, at, at the surveys, and I'm, I keep going back to that because that's, you know, I'm not from here, so I haven't been here. But um, that data shows that you know the, the practices that they're doing are working, and that the populations are coming down. My concern is that those populations are coming down quick enough, so that you know that initial spot where we were again uh, when Group One and Group Two resistance started to evolve across community of weeds, um, those 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 populations in general are still quite high um, compared to um, where they were then. So. I think I, w I would argue that it it's a balance and, and a steady progression, right? Um, I don't I don't necessarily think that there there's a cliff waiting for us, um, but it's I mean it's it's hard to predict sometimes too, though, right? We we have resistance issues on the prairies, but some of the issues that we're dealing with are not as advanced as they are elsewhere. And I would uh, I would argue that the reason for that is um, is because there's many many farmers across the prairies that 
have been um, implementing integrated weed management and uh, and um, continue to focus on diversifying their their cropping systems, right? And so um, that that would obviously result in in reduced selection and pressure for resistance and, and a slowing in the development of resistance, um, which is essentially what we're seeing. How do you know that a, a patch of weeds uh, is likely to be herbicide resistance resistant? Yeah, so it's it's unfortunately not um, straightforward again. <laughs> First of all, one thing to note is that um, while herbicides are generally quite effective, um, in general, the, the standard for um, control of a particular weed species is above 80% control. There's always going to be weeds present out in a field, right, um, after herbicide application, and, and that can make it a little difficult to to determine which ones are might be resistant and which ones might not, right? Um, there's there's certainly some some key um, things to look for in a field. Um, one of the the biggest telltale signs of potential resistance is after your herbicide application and after it's had its activity, if you're seeing um, plants of the same species that are living after that herbicide application, and then also um, other other plants of that same species that are controlled in the same area, right? Um, because we're talking about Resistance being um, a proportion of the population, and it's usually not the entire population, right? So you're having a mix of susceptible and resistant individuals in the same field. Um, so that's one of the biggest things to look for. Um, one of the things that I'll, I'll also mention um, is that we're working on developing tools for molecular diagnostics of resistance as well. Um, so if, um, for example, a farmer or agronomist does note that out in the field, um, we, um, through these tools, will be able to um, diagnose um, resistance based on the mechanism of resistance using leaf tissue samples, um, essentially extracting DNA and looking at the mechanism of resistance. Um, so these tools moving forward um, will will help farmers um, and agronomists identify um, resistance hopefully earlier in the field at a point where it could be managed more effectively. All right, Sean, what's your last word? What would be your closing statement? I think my my closing statement is just to, you know, stay on top of it um, and don't be discouraged that we're always finding new types of resistance. Um, it's also important to understand why it's happening. And if we can better understand why it's happening and kind of get that awareness out there, then we can help reduce the risk of it occurring and hopefully make our herbicide stewardship long-term be um, very effective and to keep these modes of action around. Thanks, Sean. Charles? Yeah, so I, I think in, in closing, um, so I mean, we're, we're talking about increased herbicide resistance, right? And uh, a lot of times when, when we're talking about herbicide resistance, it's unfortunately a, a bit of doom and gloom, right? Um, just more problems for farmers, which are, which are extremely unfortunate. Um, I think that, uh, th that overall, um, we're we're still doing a good job as far as, as mitigating resistance, right? And uh, there, there's always places to improve. Um, so I think that uh, that that moving forward, um, 
if if there was one area that we could focus on would be to um, try and implement um, integrated weed management as a proactive measure before you're actually dealing with um, a herbicide resistant weed that has a significant impact on your farm. Thanks again to Sean Sharp and Charles Geddes, weed research scientists with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. For lots more on integrated weed management, please read the article Integrated Weed Management Best Practices in the Weeds box at canolawatch.org fundamentals. You'll find lots of other good weed content in there as well, including spraying tips for tough conditions. We continue to build an audience for this podcast, so please subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about it. I appreciate you taking time to listen. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. This was great. Good to yeah, meet you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. <laughs> pleasure, Jay, yes. Yeah. So, Sean, uh, you know, Hugh Becky moved to Australia, so he's not from there. Uh, you're not from the prairies, but um, it's great to have you here and, and offering your your insight and your expertise and your sometimes it's very valuable to have an outside perspective. So uh, hopefully you have a good long career here and continue to adhere to your Eastern Canadian roots. So. <laughs> Thank you.